Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah, betcha, yeah. If it's made in Minnesota, who's making it and how? Yeah, you got that right. It's the makers of Minnesota, focusing on the products and services uniquely made in Minnesota, and conversations with the makers, entrepreneurs, and innovators in Minnesota about how they conceived of their products and how they brought them to market. With Stephanie Hansen, it's the makers of Minnesota. It's Stephanie Hansen, and I am here with episode eight of Makers of Minnesota. Makers of Minnesota is a podcast that we do every week that highlights people in our community that are making cool things, whether it's products or services or that they're uh, ideating cool ideas that they're being able to take to market. We will talk with the founders and find out what was it about them that allowed them to have this idea and take it to germination, to success in a lot of these cases. If you like listening to this podcast, uh, make sure that you share it with others on your social media. Also, you can rate the podcast on whatever medium you're listening, whether it's Stitcher or iTunes or Podcast One, and that will help more people learn about it. Um, Part of what we do here is to help people learn about cool businesses in our town. And one of those cool businesses is called Nearest You. And it's an ironic thing that we're talking about learning and sharing and how do we learn about brands and exciting things. My guest today is Ryan Furness. He is the founder of Nearest You. And I'm really excited to talk to you because what Nearest You does is help people locate brands. And location of so many of these products of people that I'm talking to, like finding out about them or hearing about them or creating word of mouth is a really difficult thing to do. Ryan, thanks for being on the program today. Thank you, Stephanie. How did you decide that this was a need, and how did you answer this need? What have you actually made? Good question. So <laughs> it's been a couple of years in incubation. I started with a co-founder who is no longer with the the company, but we really started this idea a couple of years ago to, um, we were sitting in a coffee shop, and on the person's, on this owner's uh, Wi-Fi network, and we were trying to locate his business. It was a small coffee shop, and we said, coffee shop near me. And we were not able to find his coffee shop um, near where we were. We were finding all of the large, big brand coffee shops. Yep. And we thought, oh, there's something wrong with this picture, that this guy, that we're on his network and we're in the vicinity, and we're not able to find his coffee shop. Was this before, like, Facebook and Google? Because I would imagine that's improved. It has improved over the, even the last couple of years. So this was only about two and a half years ago. And so it has improved a little bit. Yep. But frankly, it's still uh, the pay-to-play model of Google AdWords and other things to allow those you know, brands to bubble at the top of the Google search. Small brands, small coffee shops don't necessarily have the budget for those types of ad campaigns. And we knew that. And we, we figured, wow, this, there's something in this model that we can help these small companies, small businesses – be a part of that bigger conversation of what is near me, wherever I might be. As we know, everybody's on uh, their smartphones these days and they're, yep. they're traveling, they're moving around. And so we de- we went down that road of let's build a really cool app that shows all the independent coffee shops. Okay. And it ended up that we went down that road for a little while and we realized that our revenue model was going to be highly constrained by the budgets that these small companies had. Right. And we really decided at that point to start pivoting to where we saw the the multiple brands within each of these shops 
so that every shop essentially consisted of five to 10 to 20 different brands, whether that, you know, in a coffee shop setting, that will be milk, that will be ice cream, that will be chocolate, that will be the coffee roaster that they serve if they don't roast it in-house, um, and, and any, many, many more, tea, chai, mm-hmm. all of that stuff, pastries. And so we thought, wow, every one of these shops has 10 plus brands in it. How can we help those brands to tell people to come to this shop to buy them each of their brands? And we thought, oh, this is this is the model. This is where for every shop there are 10 potential brands that could pay us to build something of value for them. Because we do know that the top question they get, all of these brands, is where can I find your product near me? Okay. So you developed a store locator. Right. Your day, do you have a day job? <laughs> yes. Uh, my day job is actually as a faculty member at the University of Minnesota, Rochester. In a very, very different space, uh, I teach the medical Spanish courses. Okay. But additionally, I also teach the digital media courses, and now we're moving into um, entrepreneurship um, studies. So. Okay. So you had some technology background, is it fair to say? Yes. Uh, I Certainly. That was a big part of having the... I'm more of the idea guy, I will say. I'm not, I'm not a coder. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do see the bigger picture of how we can build technology tools to help, in this case, help brands be discovered. So you took, you know, everyone's familiar with Pokemon Go now, right? Yeah. So you took like the idea of this map and you created a uh, software that can find places on the world's map. That's right. I mean, and it, pinpoint a, them. That's correct. Yeah, Stephanie, we, we, we decided that the best way to go about this was to create a, we had seen other software programs out there. There are many competitors, as it were, to the store locator space. Yep. But they're all doing essentially the same thing. They're working on a Google Maps background, and they're taking the store locator data, and they're putting a, a CRM to that or a backend so that these brands can essentially embed that on their website. Yep. But they still leave it up to the brands to keep it up to date, to add and, and remove those locations that are now selling or not selling their, their products. And we thought, boy, that's another issue that all store locators, that we call it a truism of store locators, is they're all out of date. Yeah. They're all out of date. Like they You're can have only a, as good as the information that you put in. That's a, correct. And it's a human. This is, you know, it's very, very hard to automate some of that information. We're, we're working our best to, to automate now, but it's still a human at the end of the day that has to input some of that data. Yep. Um, and we have very, very, you know, we have a lot of different systems that allow for that data to be implemented either automatically or manually. But we saw that need from the brand's perspective to answer that question well, meaning, I'll give you an example. So if you look on many store locators right now, you go on to a website of a brand that you like, whether that be, you know, some a chai brand, a tea brand, a coffee brand, could be anything, personal care, cosmetics, and you go to their store locator, it's very likely that there'll be a, a map with lots of little orange dots on it. Mm-hmm. And if you're on mobile, that's a really uh, challenging experience for the mobile user because you're pinching, you're squeezing, you're copying into yep. your own maps, uh, lo- you know, your own map on your smartphone device. And... It's just a really challenging thing. And additionally, one of the key features of the current store locators is zip code search. Yeah. Well, we know that smartphone users, I personally don't ever know my zip code unless I'm at home or at the office. Right. Those are the only two locations in my world that I know my zip code. So um, same with address for that matter. If I'm at a new coffee shop or I'm at a new store, I don't necessarily know my exact address. Um, So um, our system works on the ability for us to know where you are. So you allow us to share your location with us. And we then use that to determine the nearest location to you that sells a given product. 
So do I drop like a pin? Essentially, on the you know internally, that's what you're doing. Yeah. You're just saying, yes, please find me wherever I might be on my smartphone now. It just geolocates you automatically. Mm-hmm. And then our system pulls in the store locators that are from a particular brand page that you're on. So the company that you looked for. Um, and then it finds that nearest location to you. So you have been doing nearest you as a company for how long? About two and a half years since we really conceived the idea. Okay, so you sit down with your partner in the beginning, and you're going to each put in how much money did it take you to start this idea? So far, early on, it really took less than about $20,000 total. That's a lot less than I would have thought. Yes, we were. We really tried to bootstrap this because we really wanted to, we understood that lean startup model. We yep. understood that we wanted to get a product in front of brands and really start challenging them to ask us questions about what our model did and didn't do for them, what our service did or didn't do. And so we did that early on with a version one that we are still even running today with um, the software. We are rolling out a version two now that we've actually, um, you know, we've gained, we've have, we have paid customers, which is yeah. awesome. It's a wonderful development that really has shown that we can make it, that we are a viable business because people are paying us now. So. And when you started out, you said you're the idea guy, you're not the coder. So do you hire coding people? And isn't that the majority of the expense? Absolutely. In the online app world. By far. You know, our our service is built on Ruby on Rails for those who might know what that is out there in the world. But it it was a necessity to build on that platform because we knew that we needed to find other coders in our area that could potentially you know, will continue to work with us in the future. So we wanted to find a common language platform, sure. right, to build on. And that was the one that we chose. So we had two developers early on working with us, one locally and one actually overseas. And so we developed that in, in tandem and built this platform. It, it's changed over time. It's certainly iterated and we've, we've tweaked things. We've changed design elements and we're undergoing now um, a substantial change into our second version that will bring more categories to our site. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess that's something that, you know, we should, I should just make clear that we are really innovating in the store locator space because all of the store locators right now, all the store locators as a service companies out there only do that single thing. They create store locators that you can embed on your website and then you update yourself on the back end. Yep. We have innovated in that we take those, that same store locator data, and then we also put your brand and that store locator data on our website, nearestyou.com, to um, have the ability for users to come onto our site and discover brands that are in their area, that are nearest to them, whether that be their local chai company, their tea company, their coffee company. And it will it will literally geolocate to the nearest brand based on the nearest location to you. So let's say, just as an example, yeah. I like, um, let's say I like Peace Coffee and... Because I like Peace Coffee, is your model thinking, well, I might also like uh, B.T. McElroth chocolates, and I might like this other type of affinity mm-hmm. brand that's similar to that? Yes, we're working on a model where you as a site visitor would come to our site, and potentially we would know a little bit about you, right, mm-hmm. because of where you went on our site. And if you were to – we don't have this ability just yet, but you'd be able to log in and kind of tell us some of your interests. Do you mm-hmm. like local? Do you like organic? Do you like these types of foods? And then in doing that, we would be able to tailor a little bit how you want to search for brands. Right now it's a simple kind of free-for-all where we have brands and categories, so chocolate, tea, coffee, 
Um, we're going to be soon adding beer and yeah. spirits. So these are, we call them categories internally, but externally they're finders. Right. right? So they're a, a coffee and or a chocolate finder. And right now you can go on and you'd find Cool Chocolate. They're a local bean-to-bar company. Yep. You'd find you know the local chocolate companies and then the locations to, that sell that. So what's interesting about what you're doing is you're helping small businesses in most cases to find, to match up with their ideal consumers. In addition to that, you have to market yourself as a brand because you want me as a consumer who likes food to find nearest you, utilize your services, not only to help the brands that you represent, but also supposedly you're helping me to find new things. So you're helping them get located, but you also have to get located at the same time. What type of model are you using for that to help people like me, foodie people, find you as a brand so that I know to go to your website? That's a wonderful question. And we get that question actually by brands because you know, what we are, we're really a two-fold service. First is a is a product service store locator. Yep. Right. That's it's a function, it's a it's a utility for brands to build their store locator so they can tell their customers where to find them. But additionally, we're our own marketing, right, company. And we're also marketing their their services, their products through nearstew.com. Mm-hmm. And so you're right in asking that same question that that brands ask us. And how we're doing that is um, we have a, a kind of a long-term strategy with that. You know, the first the first is that in building the store locators as we have, which is essentially a custom page for brands. So on nearestyou.com, each brand has a custom page. So mm-hmm. nearestyou.com slash cool chocolate, nearestyou.com slash brand X. And so what brands do currently is they just link from that site to the, um, from their site to our site. Mm-hmm. Right? So if you go to um, one of our clients' brands, or one of their sites, and it says store locator, you click on that, and it actually takes you to nearestyou.com slash X brand. Okay. And what that does is it gives us organic traffic, right? It allows for for those brand, those people that are visiting those brands' websites to also discover nearest you as, right. a, as a site. And then you can, you know, and primarily it's to go find the data for the stores for that particular brand, but there's also a link on there. Our, our logo is an intentional link that brings you to, the homepage of nearest you, so you can discover other brands that are also within your within your geographic region. So, is it working? I would say it is. We started, <laughs> yes. It's a, it, you know working when we started getting paid customers. That for us was that defining moment. And yep. for the, all of the startup gurus in town that we've been reaching out to and talking to and going to groups, we have gotten that same feedback. Like once you have paying customers, it then really vali- it validates yeah. what you've been doing. You know and before we just had an idea, we thought this would be great, right? But when people actually pay you for the service you're providing, that tells us that it's working. How much does it cost if I'm a brand to be geolocated through utilizing your site? Yeah, so we actually, so in building a store locator, we build a store locator and you get a listing on nearest you. Yep. For this, it's all, it's a package deal. Essentially, you become both, you have both of those. And we work on a very egalitarian model of if you're a small brand, you pay us less. If you're a larger brand, you pay us more. It's based on the number of locations you have in your locator. So if you're a brand, for example, at a local farmer's market, and you know, a local honey brand that sells in the local farmer's market and maybe four or five other specialty shops in your area, you would pay $5 a month okay. total. There's no long-term commitments to that. And we, we really did that on purpose because 
we want to grow with these brands. We want them to, this to be accessible to them, and we know that their marketing budgets are very small. That seems like nothing. Right. So what's the most person paying? Right now, it's about $80 a month. Okay, and, and that person has lots of locations. A couple and... thousand. Yes. Okay, so <laughs> the business person in me is quickly calculating, okay, so if an average sale then is, let's just say, $25 to be fair, how are you ever going to make any money? We have a long-term plan for adding additional services. And we know that, for example, data is really valuable. So when, when people come to our website and they start searching different brands, yep. that we that brands like to know where those customers are going and how they found their brand on nearest you. Um, that data is something that we would potentially package and, and resell to the brands so that they can start going, oh, yes, I know that there are people looking in this region for my product. And are they finding it? Are we in stores there? No. But can we be? Yes. Because right. Because nearest you is saying... You know, we've got a hotspot here of people that are searching for your type of product and you're not in this region. Do you think you should be there? You know, and so it's a bit of a strategy and marketing. Um, so it sounds like the store locator piece is the um, appetizer, if you will, with the relationship with the brand. And then you're trying to build out the soup, the salad, the entree, the dessert, the after dinner drink that the more you work with the brand, the more intimate you get in their challenges of their marketing goals and who their customers are and who their P1 ideal target is. And you help them to formulate a strategy based on that, utilizing more advanced services that you have. That's right. And that's exactly it. It, it really is a point of entry into sure. what, the, what the nearest you world can hopefully do for them from a marketing standpoint and service standpoint. Can you tell me a success story? Like you mentioned, yeah, I, I'd mean, like to know someone that utilized your service, maybe it was their $10 a month, and someone came and said, hey, here's what I found. Yes, I can actually give you a specific brand story that just came about sure. recently for um, a local brand here in Minnesota called Sarah's Tipsy Pies. Sure. And um, Sarah Hayden, right? Sarah Hayden, yes. She's a, a recent... We've interviewed her, I think, on our Weekly Dish radio show. Gosh, we've been doing that show... I want to say nine years, and I think we interviewed her maybe right when she got started. Mm, yeah, she's a wonderful story. She has a great backstory. They're boozy pies. Boozy yeah. pies. And so I had seen mention of her out in the world, and, and that frankly, that's how we do business development sometimes is just talking to people and talking to other brands, and then brands talk to other brands, and they reach out to us or I reach out to them, and um, we sign them on. And mm -hmm. so that's what happened with Sarah's Tipsy Pies, that I had seen this product out there. I thought this would be a nice fit for our natural category, and I reached out. And it took a little time to to convince and say, yes, this is a service you need. And um, she got it maybe within a month in signing up, and she had gotten a customer request by email. And we know this is also very common. She got a customer request by email that asked, where can I find your pies near me? And at that time, she had not um, put the link on her website yet. Mm -hmm. you know, we had made a page for her, and it was on our nearest you site, but it had not been put on her site. So... The, the customer asked where, and Sarah sent her the link to the nearest you, um, her nearest you page, which had all the locations in it. Within three hours, um, Sarah posted a picture on her Facebook page of um, a grocery aisle with a woman's cart that had five pies in it. And that this customer had said, I just bought these five pies based on your store locator link that you sent me. And and then additionally, when she posted that, we saw a spike in traffic to nearest you, mm -hmm. so into her specific locator. But it was a huge spike, and I was 
I had watched our Google Analytics occasionally, and I, I had seen that, and I thought, what's going on? Why are there so much traffic to Sarah's Tipsy Pies on Nearest You? And I traced it back to the referral, which is Facebook. Yep. And saw that from – so all that beautiful ecosystem and traffic was because of the Nearest You locator. So it, it got into Facebook. Facebook brought traffic to Nearest You. Sarah sold more pies. So there's a – That's an interesting story because when I think about – so Sarah has – hand pies that have booze in them basically Mm -hmm. and when i think like i know about her pies they're delicious i've had them i think i've seen her at an event once but i couldn't tell you where to maybe kowalski's is somewhere or maybe but i couldn't tell you where to get those pies and it's funny because on our weekly dish radio show that we do on saturdays from 9 to 11 stephanie march and i talk to a lot of different brands and and we don't really get into, like, where are you located? Because you can have the best brand in the world. Cool Chocolates is a good example. That's your customer. Their name is not traditionally spelled. It's kind of hard to find. I, it's interesting to think about that in the context of, okay, I really want this product. And what you can't underestimate is, so we'll talk about something on the radio, and I'll get all these emails, like, where can we find this? Where can we find this? And it'll go on for months. And, you know, I have to go out and find where can these people yes. find this or I'll send a, a link to a brand's page, but that doesn't necessarily say where to find it. So it's interesting. You, you're you clearly onto something here. Here's the challenge that I've been working with a lot of smaller brands and smaller businesses. They just don't have the money for this these marketing types of resources. What does it take to convince someone? I mean, your entry of price is so low. But let, let's say now, so Sarah's had this experience. She was probably paying, I'm just going to say, 10 bucks for her locator. Now, what's the next level that you can help her that she can be like, wow, this really makes sense to me? So, yeah, after the store locator deal, you know, we, we provide services that will help her continue to expand that reach, right? So social media management, social media um, strategy and listening uh, tools that can help her take her to the next level. You know, so she sells at all these great places. She has a link now to her website, from her website to the nearest year locator, but she still gets those inquiries, right? And she's still going to have trouble updating the, the locator. So we also provide an, um, an add-on service called the concierge service where we will update her locator for her automatically. Mm-hmm. And we'll do it um, on a monthly or quarterly basis. So all, all the brands have to do if they sign on for the concierge service is send us the data in whatever format they want. We've even gone so far as to say, when you're at a, a local shop, write, write the shop. If you just got them as a wholesale client, write, write that on a napkin and send a picture to us. Mm-hmm. We'll update your locator for you. No problem. So that's an additional service that we provide mm-hmm. as far as this. So we do the store locators, but we also do the automated store locators. Brands are really liking that because they don't have to even do the data entry that they, that they don't like at all. That's yeah. another, it's another, you know, so those are the two truisms, right? Is that do you have a mobile friendly locator and is it up to date? We can help with both of those, which again, it's very, very rare in the store locator space. How did you learn social media yourself? And, like, are you an expert at all of them? You know, there's Instagram, Snapchat, Pinterest, Twitter, Facebook, um, the, just yeah. the video sites. And it seems to come, and there seems to be a new one every month. Yep. It, it seems like that. And and what we do, what I've done, is I also own a, a, an apparel manufacturing company um, based in Minnesota and, and actually is a made-in-the-USA company. So I started with that and just figuring out what 
what is that company as long as we're... Yeah, it's called No Ordinary Journey. Okay. And it's a, a local uh, Minnesota company that makes products for motorcycle riders primarily. Okay. So motorcycle accessories. Oh, sure. Huge say, market. Right. I say we don't do um, chaps, but other, <laughs> otherwise we we do other products. Sure. Like neck warmers, bottle clavis, et cetera. And so I really, I really started with that experimenting with Twitter primarily and seeing the value of that, some of that, you know, it's still challenging. It's still challenging after three or four years now on Twitter to find that ROI, right? To find that what is the true it return is. on my investment, especially as nebulous as branding it can be. Mm-hmm. And we're getting a lot better now with tools and, you know, what does a follow mean versus an engagement versus a like versus a retweet, you know, on Twitter, for example. So expert, I think we're all amateurs in some ways and we're all testing things and we're all trying new things. But the more experience we have, the more we can tell, in our case, brands, when we work with brands in social media, to tell them, really, you want to focus your efforts on this, and you don't really want to focus them on that. And sometimes that means channels. If you're not a lover of Snapchat, I would say don't waste your time. I mean, don't waste your time. Don't use your resources, your time right now to do that. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that about Snapchat, given the millennial, given the trajectory that Snapchat has had, but yeah. I just mean that in general, right? So any channel that, if you don't love taking pictures, you personally, and you have a small team, and you don't have a marketing person. Maybe you should reconsider your your um, brand's channel on Instagram. Yeah, that's not for you. Um, if you love it, if you love Pinterest, go after Pinterest. If you love being on there as an individual, and now you're a brand owner, by all means, use that as your one of your primary. If it fits your brand messaging and your marketing, so we do tell brands focus on a couple of channels that are really important to you, and where also you feel like you'll get a good return on your investment for the number of people that would use that channel with your particular brand. If you were going to rank the channels just based on small brands, local businesses in terms of importance, Mm -hmm. would there be like, you'd start with one and go down? I think for the food and beverage industry right now, and that's, we, I wouldn't say, I'd say we focus nearest you focuses with food and Mm -hmm. on food and beverages right now. Um, we're not limited to that. We've had inquiries from personal care and, and other categories, but we're really focusing on food and beverage. I found Instagram to be a, a must mm-hmm. because there's a lot of engagement. You have a lot of direct engagement with your customers. They're actually commenting on your photos mm-hmm. as much as, as liking them, which is which is what you want, right? At the end of the day, liking is great, but what you want is engagement so you can engage back and talk to them and get them to the nearest store to buy their your products, mm-hmm. right? So you're creating those brand loyalists. And so I would say Instagram. Facebook is another, though, as we know, it's become a play, you know, pay-to-play model. So you really have to, in my opinion, have a bit of a budget behind that so that your Facebook messaging can reach broader audiences. Not, And, and that's true, and you know this, Stephanie, that you can't um, – you might have 500 people that like your page, but when you post a, a Facebook um, post, only – Two and a half percent of them will actually see that post. Mm-hmm. So the pay-to-play model. And so I think Facebook is second. Um, after that, depending on your brand, I you know Pinterest and even Snapchat now have become tools to really enhance your marketing. Um, a lot of like I was a small business person, and to be honest, I had you know I managed a staff of fifteen direct reports for sales. I had. Uh, just a lot on my plate. And social media always felt like it fell down to the bottom of the barrel. And I did the best I could, but I never felt good about it or felt like I was doing it well. 
And what I've since come to discover is that is a super common theme. So when would you advise someone as a small business person to get help? Like, What does that look like? Is it a when you've gotten to this level of sales, when you feel like you can, because it's not necessarily cheap to get help in the social media realm. Yeah, My I experience agree. is that for legitimate help, it's about 2500 bucks a month, mm-hmm. and probably. You, yeah, and, the, and a lot of the bulk of the brands that we work with, which let's say they are small to medium-sized brands at the largest, you know, where they're selling in at the most 1,000 locations. Yep. But, but our sweet spot is really 150 to 200 locations. We have a lot of brands that are in that space. Yep. Yes, they absolutely need to make sure they're on the primary channels where they they know their customers are. And they've done a little bit of research. They they know, you know, when talking to their customers where where they primarily are, whether that's Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Pinterest. And yes, I think that there's still a model for co-creation. I'm not, you know, the authenticity of voice is still important and we hear that a lot from brands, but we also hear it from the, the branding gurus out there that you still want to have that authenticity of voice. If you outsource all of that, um, you start missing out on really interesting and engaging conversations out there that are happening about your brand. And then you have to get that um, through some of those outsourced services. And I think sometimes that message might get lost. You know, if there's... Well, and you can't always be there. If you're at a farmer's market <laughs> and someone has a great story about a cake they made with your amazing honey – you're as the social media manager and not on site, not hearing that story. That's totally right. Yep. And and that's why we love the co-creation model of the ability to work with brands so that they can both still create while getting assistance in doing some of the creation on our part so that we can automate some of that. We can, you know, make some of the shout outs that we talk about um, more of the automated style, but then also hope for the engagement and be ready. You know, as you know, Stephanie, the shelf life of a tweet is about two hours yeah. at the most. And I think they even say 90 minutes now is maximum. Instagram is a little bit longer, especially now because they've changed the algorithms as far as it's not chronological anymore. It's it's based on who you've liked in the past and how much you've liked. So Instagram shelf life is a lot longer. And that's why I think I also, in addition to why I said it's probably number one on most people's priority list. Um, how do you feel about the... Um the stories models that we're seeing on Snapchat and on Instagram as it pertains to brands specifically, something that you craft, it's maybe not curated in advance. It's sort of on the fly and then it disappears in 24 hours. Are you seeing that as a big part of what you'll be doing for these brands? Or do you see that as something that's maybe for, for the, for the social user? I would say that that is really where the the brand's most authentic voice can come through and the ability to do that. So we actually coach some of the brands that we're working with in this space, in the social media strategy space, to actually do those themselves. We can tell them when we think the best times to do that are, when they should post those, what they should be about so that it's, it's consistent for their marketing efforts, it's, you know, that they're, mess- they're staying on message. Um, but I think they're really powerful in that way, you know, the ability to see behind the, the curtain and be see behind the kitchen door. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about a food brand, to make a story, whether that's Instagram or Snapchat. Um, and by the way, my... Um, my teenage daughters roll their eyes when they hear about Instagram stories. Because it is it, funny. There's <laughs> been a big backlash, I think, from the 12 to mm-hmm. 24 market. Yeah. They, you know, Instagram just basically ripped off Snapchat, mm-hmm. which they did. Mm-hmm. And all good brands do, right? They called it the same thing even. so. And so I'm sure they knew 
But will it prevent them from getting into that space if they're already at Instagram, which a lot of them are, and Snapchat was an enhancement, they would they would be doing Snapchat as well. I wonder if over time, especially if Instagram can get good filters for the because what people love about Snapchat is the cute photo yes, filters, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and it's fast and it's easy to modify. So if people can do that in Instagram, yes. and they can now, but they're not as many and they're not as cute and they're yeah. not as topical, right? Yes, and I think that's I think you're you're totally onto it. That's I think that's I think because of the user base, I don't even, I I want to say it's about a half a billion now on Instagram. So I think they're going to have enough users to who are going to continue to use it because you want. Obviously, Instagram is doing that so you stay within their platform and don't, yep. and don't exit out and go over to Snapchat when you want to do a story-like function. They want you to stay all in Instagram. And, and I found it a bit, right at this moment, a little bit chaotic. You know, do I re, do I look at a brand story? Or do I scroll through my feed to uh, I'm finding the engage, same thing. And I f- I'm not a Snapchatter. I mean, I've done it mm-hmm. for pictures mm-hmm. to decorate them. But in terms of creating a story, I've never done that in Snapchat. And in Instagram, it's not intuitive. I don't feel like, and it's very of the moment, which is great if it's me personally, Stephanie Hansen. But if I'm working on a brand, you know, it's it's maybe not that, or I want to maybe do the video and do the pictures and then kind of stitch it all together. And that's harder to do in Instagram. It is. And then the ephemeral nature of that, right? The, this mm-hmm. 24-hour um, thing. And for the marketer in me, I'm going to, you know, I know they're going to be rolling out tools for us to capture the data of yep. who's watching it. Did they watch the whole eight-minute, you know, eight-second story? Is that something that we can then you know, build on from the marketing standpoint? And that's just something to be seen, uh, I think. And you learn a lot from like Facebook when they started doing Facebook Live and you had videos. It was really interesting to see, you know, when it started out, I think my first video I ever did was a 60 second video. Well, I lost everybody after 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. So then I did a 30 second video and I got the people to stay longer. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting once you get into those analytics about it informs how you would do that moving forward. Absolutely. And that's why we're hoping for those a few more tools in that space. But I'm still I'm still coaching my brands to use it, to try it, to make sure yeah. they're comfortable with it. Because again, if we're gonna be doing some social media strategy, we I just don't wanna be the sole voice. I want the brands to be involved. I want there to be a brand owner. And we're working with such small companies in in many cases that we're working with the owners or yeah. the the partner of the owners or somebody within that space that is also doing that, and it's not wholly and completely outsourced. So we're really working with that authentic voice, and I, I want the brands to know that so they own it, so they can really be a part of it. Um, in working with a lot of these smaller brands, they have so much on their plate, and they're really stretched, and they're just, I mean, it's when you launch a business, it's like it's your baby. I, I don't think we got to, like, at what point, if you're a brand, would you start to look at outsourcing this stuff? Yes, and and it's funny we just had that conversation today with two brands because and I, I keep telling them I know you're focused on production and operations. Mm-hmm. That's what you have to do because you have to make your product. You have to go back home and make your salsa or your honey or yep. you know, your pies. And so when you get to the point of complete saturation, and I don't know where that is for a business owner. Is that fifty hours a week? Is that eighty hours a week? And you in in only production and operations and everything else that you might be doing. That's that time at that point when you have to admit to yourself that you can't do it all. Right. And we do have some brands that are at that tipping point to say, I truly cannot do it all. I can't, I'm going to have to outsource some of this stuff, or at least in, in a lot of these brands cases, they have made a great product, but they don't necessarily know how to market it. They come from very, very different backgrounds yeah. in marketing and business. And so 
They, you're a cheese maker or right. you're and so they really, and a lot of them have other jobs. Oh, absolutely. Yes, I've learned that as well. Like you, know, you did. We, we I mean, all do. when we do, started yeah. our business, yeah, I for 2 years I worked full-time at another job while my husband worked full-time in our business and then I was eventually able to leave, but yeah. you know, it just takes a while. Oh boy. And and so that's why, you know, social media they say is 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 free so to speak. We never we never say that to brands because what's free? My time is worth is valuable. And so in coaching them and in using social media, it is what can you, you know, what resources do you want to put out time primarily? How much time do you want to devote to this? And where do you think your return on that investment of time will be? And where do you think you can outsource it? So, Okay. So you're a very smart person, okay. uh, smart man. <laughs> Tell me like the dumbest thing you've done in, as it retains to your business. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not I w- married the wrong woman or, you know, any <laughs> yes, of that. I see. Um you know, I would say, you know, it's hard to it's hard to just choose one. Obviously, one. So, <laughs> one. is there some story that sticks out in your mind where you're like, God, if I had that to do over again, I would not do that? Or honestly, I would say that it would be in outsourcing our product too early. So, in building nearest you, we we just jumped to we had some early bids from local companies, mm-hmm. and we jumped very very quickly into we can get this done for way cheaper overseas. Yeah. And this story has been repeated over and again. I don't think, I think had we had thought through and even found a local consultant that had been through this process, like we have now, you know, I'm I'm thinking in my own world, I've had students and others, you know, post-grads come up to me and say, Nearest You is so cool. We want to build, you know, there's a gang of four of them. They want to, yep. they want to build something as well. And, and I say, well, then I truly, I, I know I might be biased, but we should sit down and talk. And you should pay me some money to tell you the, the pitfalls, the potential pitfalls of going this route because I've learned a ton in two and a half years of outsourcing and not outsourcing certain things about our business model. So certainly that would be the biggest one is we jumped the gun. We jumped right into our version one. We did it overseas and it dragged on for months and months and months mm-hmm. before we were even able to launch what we wanted to do. So when I say we started two and a half years ago, we actually launched um, just – Nine months ago, in very very early beta, wireframey, only had one paying customer. Yep. And even then, it was challenges with that customer from day one. They were we were working with them on a beta, but they they were looking for the full service. You know, sure. They, and we struggled to kind of. They're still with us, which is awesome. I mean, we haven't actually we don't have a problem with customer retention. Thankfully, every brand that signed on is has still stayed on with us. So that also tells us that we're doing something right that we put that customer first. But it. I would say it's that that pitfall of early outsourcing without really knowing what that meant. I think too, my experience was really similar. Like you work on something and you think it's going to take you six months and it's going to take you eighteen. Oh god! In our instance, my husband quit his job way too early. Like <laughs> yeah, we yes. probably could have gone another year of him still working and bringing in income and saving money. But he was really excited. We launched, and like it took us another eight months to even get our website where anyone could even use it. So that's that's good advice. Um, one of the things that I see business people do, small business in particular, is I was telling someone today, you're tripping over nickels. You're trying to save money in every single way, and you lose sight of what the value of your time is. You're a person who has another job. This is a business that you want to launch in a more significant way. So 
do you then have to at some point leave your teaching job? Do you have to at some point hire a smart person to help you grow this while you're still able to do your teaching job? That's got to be something you're thinking about as you grow. It's constant. It's constantly on my mind. Yes. It's something that, you know, we we're starting to hit those points of, okay, now we do the store locators, but we're also helping brands with marketing. Right. right. We're doing basic website design for them, some logo design, even some packaging design, um, social media management. And yes, we've, we've had to contract now up to five people, uh, all locally at this point, just because I needed to have, be able to sit down with these people and not just Skype with them. And yeah. So we, we brought it back. We still have an overseas developer that works on certain aspects of nearest you, but we also have brought a lot of it locally. And so, yes, I'm hopeful that with that small team in place and certain processes that are efficient, that I'll be able to continue this for a little while longer until we, I can really feel like I'm ready to make that, if that comes to that, to make that leap. Can you leave academia? I mean, isn't that like the best job ever with tenure? (laughs) And I mean, Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm a, I'm a non-tenured faculty at the university of Minnesota. Okay. So that's not on the table for you. You know, in some ways I'm really, I really enjoy that because uh, what that means is I can focus on teaching. And yep. That's really the part that I love the most. I enjoy research as well, but I also get my research uh, juices from all this marketing. Stuff, yeah, right? I can see that. Juices flow from all of that other work that I do, so I don't necessarily have that need in um, you know at the university to do that. And I'm able to just focus on the students and the learning and building courses that I love to teach. And I have a lot of flexibility. I've been in, in the campus now uh, for six years. And I was the first one in the Spanish area. So um, I'm able to have that flexibility to to really do the things that I think are important for the students and then the courses that we teach. So I don't know. I, it's really hard to say what my timeline is. Mm-hmm. Right now I'm just focus on, focusing on building nearest you to where the next step. You yeah. seem somewhat unique too in that a lot of people develop products, but they're not good salespeople. And they might be a good salesperson, but they're a terrible marketer. Like – I don't know. How did you get the whole package, and what do you think your weekend? Yeah, did you uh, have to read my LinkedIn page? No, but no. On, on my, I just have a mini story on there that talks a little bit about how I how I did this whole entrepreneur thing, and it's a funny story, and it, it mirrors a lot of other people's stories that um, are salespeople at heart, maybe, and, and, and are creative. So I bought pencils in fourth grade from a local out. It was called Comb at the time, and it was a local Minneapolis place that bought fire sale merchandise from places that had fires or, you know, extra inventory surplus stuff. And then they sold it in bulk at the store down in in Minneapolis, uh, down on Lake Street and Hiawatha Avenue. I remember it clearly. And so I'd buy them in bulk in 144 pencil packs and then sell them out of my locker for a quarter apiece. And thankfully at that time, there was a thing called pencil fighting where you would hit the other kid's pencil as hard as you could to see if you could break it. And then each of, so so you can imagine the the inventory that I had to hold for broken pencils. It was wonderful, you know. Sure. So I walked around with pockets of quarters um in 4th grade and I had, you know, extra lunch money and I could buy that coke that I wanted and um and that it honestly just kept going. So in um high school I had I sold pop and candy bars out of a cooler. I actually started in a hand cooler. Um, and, and graduated to not, not literally from high school, though I did graduate, but I graduated to a rolling cooler, um, where I would stop by teachers offices in their classrooms during the lunch hour and sell them candy that I had bought at Costco or Sam's club. And eventually that actually got, um, it, it 
the principal put a stop to that. I was going to say it gets got frowned upon in it the later frowned, years. It got frowned upon, and I think I took too much money away from the vending machine revenue. Yeah. So um, they, you know, they stopped that. And but that really, and so that translated into after you know during my college years and my graduate education years, I sold um, computers that I had gotten off lease on you know Dell's website, and I sold those to people on eBay or my my friends or my students or what not my students currently, but I mean sure you know it was just a model that was. Successful for me to continue to do this fun thing of buying something and then reselling it or making it or, or whatever it was. And that's funny. Um, I didn't know what you were it was. that kid, and I was that kid, <laughs> but I didn't know I was that kid. I didn't know what that meant. I just thought I'm buying stuff cheap and I'm reselling it for more and right. I'm making money and I'm able to support at that time my early family. You know, and in graduate school, I had um, my first daughter, and so I was making money to make ends meet, literally. And I didn't know that it was called entrepreneur. I didn't know that I was an entrepreneur or a salesman even, you know, even though my dad would say you can, you know, you're able to sell anything to anybody. And I, I think in that stage of my mid twenties, I started to realize that's what I was. That's what, that's what selling is. That's what being a salesman is, even though I love it. Academia. Is. <laughs> it is. Oh, this is such a great story, Ryan. Yeah. Thank you for being here today um, and sharing your story. The brand is nearest you. And you can find them on nearestyou.com, on Twitter, on Facebook. And if you need help in the social media space or in the web development space, Ryan would be a great person to talk to. Thanks for being on Makers of Minnesota and good luck. Thank you so much. You bet. At Farmers Insurance, we know every windshield collision has a unique sound. Beetle. Bird poop. Drone. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. An F-16 pilot having hydraulic problems with his aircraft managed to parachute to safety as the plane smashed into a warehouse east of Los Angeles. Fire Captain Fernando Herrera. That pilot landed in the uh, March Air Force Base area. And, and what's in the base itself. Amazingly, there were no serious injuries after the plane hit the building. Alabama executed a man last night for his role in killing four people after an argument over a pickup truck. Tennessee executed a man who killed his wife. Reporters couldn't see the execution, but AP correspondent Travis Lawler says... We could hear sounds, uh, including a singing that uh, uh, Mr. Johnson's attorney says was him singing a hymn. Answering a reporter's question, President Trump said he hopes the U.S. is not on a path to war with Iran. Mr. Trump has dismissed suggestions that any of his advisors are trying to push him into a conflict. I'm Rita Foley.